are in a very unique and unprecedented time in the history of mankind, where millions of people are dying from COVID-19 and COVID-related disruptions of essential healthcare services, which has left other diseases and parallel pandemics going on in Africa unattended to. Vaccines are really what will end this pandemic. But just like with previous pandemics, like HIV AIDS and H1N1 and others, Africa once again finds itself at the back of the queue for vaccines. And at the rate at which vaccines are currently being rolled out, there will not be sufficient doses until 2023. And that's, of course, assuming that everything works according to plan. In this and in future pandemics, we can expect the situation to play out in exactly the same way as it did with HIV AIDS, which took a decade and 12 million lives lost to persuade the world that Africa's lives were worth saving and therefore antiretrovirals should be made available to Africans. This repetitive pattern has compelled African leaders to rethink their position of total reliance on the goodwill of others to meet almost all of the medical needs of their citizens, especially during global health emergencies. They are now proactively working as a team to rally global support to break this cycle of dependence from repeating itself in perpetuity. There are no illusions about the size of the challenge facing African countries, but as the African saying goes, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. And the second best time is today. The world has the capacity for making vaccines in millions of doses when what is needed are billions of doses. And expanding global manufacturing capacity in Africa would be good for everyone because it will help to ensure that global health security is extended to all. Unless, of course, we insist on the Western-centric idea of health security that excludes everyone else. If we expect that humanity will continue to face pandemics after COVID, then we must ask ourselves, how many people have to die in this and in future pandemics before we say that commercial interest cannot be so sacrosanct that no matter how many lives are lost or the situation, commercial interest always takes precedence over human life? Are there no ways for us to make concessions in situations such as this, where we can say, if companies cannot make enough of a vaccine or any medical product needed to stop people from dying, then there is a responsibility to share the necessary technology, even if it's for a, a time limited period, and to do it in a way that is fair and gets a, a return on investment for those investors. Humanity faces these questions, pandemic after pandemic, and there are no easy answers. But for those of us in Africa who will not get vaccines until 2023, and until then, we will continue to bury our loved ones, this feels like an existential threat. And so many of us are hoping that the COVID-19 pandemic will prove to be the final straw that will get everyone who can contribute a solution to work together towards a permanent solution to a recurring problem so that in the next pandemic, we can provide timely protection to Africans and in so doing affirm that their lives to hold equal value. 
My next guest on Let's Talk About Health in Africa is Mrs. Margaret Ndomondo Sigonda, the Head of Programs at the African Union Development Agency, NEPAD, also called the New Partnership for Africa's Development Agency. She has been leading the AU efforts to harmonize medicines regulation, which is the first step towards creating an African medicines agency. Welcome to Let's Talk About Health in Africa. My next guest on our podcast is Mrs. Margaret Domondo Sigonda, who is the head of programs at the African Union Development Agency, NEPAD, which is also called New Partnerships for Africa's Development. Margaret has been leading the African Union efforts to harmonize medicines regulation, which is the first step towards creating an African medicines agency, which is really critical to the ambition of manufacturing vaccines on the African continent. So Margaret, the Africa Center for Disease Control has been doing a phenomenal job in rallying uh, governments to use public health measures and tools to maximum effect, which has saved many lives in Africa. But now the Africa CDC is looking to the future and wants to strengthen Africa's capacity to make vaccines so that the region can meet the needs of African citizens during future pandemics. So one of the most critical building blocks for manufacturing vaccines in Africa is the right regulatory environment. And in Africa, we have 54 regulatory authorities, which means 54 laws, 54 regulatory frameworks, standards and guidelines. And you have been working to change this. Can you just tell us a little bit about that work to put it into perspective to us about your efforts to, to create the African Medicines Agency, starting with the African Medicines Regulatory Harmonization and how this will lead to the Med African Medicines Agency and how far we are from seeing the African Medicines Agency come to life? Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this conversation. As you rightly mentioned, the continent actually is at a stage where it's looking into strengthening its capacity to manufacture pharmaceutical products, including vaccines, and especially during this time when we realized issues around vaccine nationalism, where you know the countries on the continent were not able to access quickly to some of the vaccines that were produced because of uh, limited capacity to produce locally and be able to supply the countries on the continent, therefore, the need for coming up with our own initiatives. But I think it's very important that we also uh, put things in, in perspective that the African Union had actually, uh, since 2005, uh, identified local manufacturing of medicines as one of its priority areas to address the issues around, you know, facilitating access to safe, efficacious and quality medicines to its own people. And uh, so basically when that decision was reached to uh, establish pharmaceutical manufacturing plan for Africa, it was considered necessary that that is anchored under the then NEPAD framework. And so what we did uh, after that decision in 2005, the ministers of health met in 2017 and uh, agreed on a plan. And eventually we developed a business plan 
on pharmaceutical manufacturing for Africa. But one of the key components in the PMPA framework was provided an enabling environment for local production of medicines on the continent. And therefore, that was the reason why we had to come up with the African Medicines Regulatory Harmonization Initiative in 2009. And so basically, the AMRH Initiative is a partnership platform, which is composed of heads of agencies on the continent, you know, from all the 55 countries but also the regional economic communities. And also we had some initial partners that came together to establish a consortium. Uh, that is the African Union NEPAD, and now AUDA NEPAD. We have the African Union Commission. We have had Pan-African Parliament, uh, the Gates Foundation, and the uh, DFID by then, UK Department for International Development, but also the uh, Clinton uh, Health Access Initiative, because eventually we also had the U.S. government came in through the PEPFA program and WHO. And those were the initial partners that came together to, to constitute the AMRH initiative through um, you know, working with countries and regions. Of course, eventually we also had the World Bank that came in 2011 to establish a multi-donor trust fund to, um, to support funding for this initiative. So basically what the initiative does is to work through the regional economic communities, recognizing that individual countries have limited capacity. You have capacity limitation in some countries and therefore the need for using the regional structure as a building block for bringing countries together to work share, you know, doing joint activities such as a joint review of um, dossier applications, joint inspection of uh, manufacturing sites, and through that, you know, from, of course, also harmonizing regulatory standards, such as the requirements for registration of medicines or GMP inspection. And so through that approach, it was considered necessary that it serves as a platform for building capacity among countries, because the situation then was such that we had so much fragmented regulatory frameworks across countries on the continent, and we were trying to address that. And so uh, we've worked through the regional economic communities. We started with the East African community. We launched the program in 2012. And uh, after that, then we eventually scaled up to the uh, Southern African Development Community, SADC region, the ECOWAS. This is the West Africa Economic Community. And then, of course, we also went as far as uh, initiating another program in the IGAD. This is the Horn of Africa. And then, of course, now we are also putting together some um, projects in the uh, Central Africa region. And basically, what we are doing, as I mentioned, we've harmonized requirements for registration of medicines. But also, through these joint works that countries are you know, undertaking together, in addition, we also have had to institute systems, quality management systems, so that the regulators can have robust, you know, system for the regulation of medicines in their respective countries. So these processes and systems have really helped shape how the regulators are working. Even the standards of working has changed tremendously. We've seen tremendous, you know, reduction, for instance, of um, timelines for marketing authorization in these countries that we are already undertaking these initiatives. And uh, in addition to that, we've also seen, for instance, uh, through the AU model law on medical products regulation, we have seen countries adopting that model law as a way of strengthening their national legal frameworks. You know, at the moment, as I'm speaking, more than 17 countries have actually adopted the AU model law on medical products regulation. We also have had to establish, for instance, 
you know, regional centers of regulatory excellence as platforms to build capacity among the regulatory agency. And we've seen very, you know, positive results. So all these efforts are meant to really address those regulatory challenges that the continent is facing, but also serve as a platform for providing an enabling environment for pharmaceutical industry to flourish. It sounds like you are, are doing a lot of work all in order to ensure that we have medicines and vaccines and health products that are safe and work as they should. And it seems like this initiative, the, the efforts to, towards the harmonization have been going on for a while, since 2005. So did the COVID pandemic affect in any way the timelines that you're working with towards actually seeing an African medicines agency that is operational and is able to operate in place of all of the single agencies that we have. Right. The initiative, the MRH initiative started in 2009. The PMPA framework is the one that came into effect in 2005. But uh, with the emergence of COVID pandemic, what we have seen, first and foremost, is, uh, you know, the, the fact that the platform, the MRH platform has really helped to assist the countries in addressing, you know, uh, challenges when it comes to approval, for instance, of uh, COVID-19 uh, medical devices, you know, in vitro diagnostics and, you know, uh, personal uh, protective equipment. Countries were struggling because some of them didn't have proper standards to approve during the time when the pandemic started. So we were able to use the uh, continental Structures. We have the African Medical Devices Forum, which is a technical committee under the MRH, which was able to come up with quickly the list of products that are approved, um, guidance for approval, importation guidelines, but also guidance for how to detect substandard and falsified medical devices and in vitro diagnostics. So these are the things that happened immediately after the pandemic started. We've had to also um, employ uh, other technical committees, such as the African Vaccines Regulators Forum, which is responsible for clinical trial oversight to provide oversight on, you know, vaccines, clinical trials, but also vaccine approvals as well. And so, so these are the processes and structures that we have used to address the pandemic since it started. But the process for establishing the African Medicines Agency, as you may recall, uh, it's been really, you know, a, a slow process in itself because uh, in 2015, we had a decision by the uh, African Union Executive Council, which actually um, recognized the work that MRH is doing and that it actually uh, decided that MRH should serve as a foundation for establishing the AMA. So it was a process that we had to undertake because we had to come up with a, you know, institutional framework and also legal framework for AMA to come into force. So a treaty was drafted and uh, it has been a long consultative process, 2015-2016, all the way until February 2019, when the African Union adopted the treaty for establishing the African Medicines Agency. So, and this is the work that we have been doing jointly with the African Union Commission and WHO as Joint Secretary. Also, we had uh, established an AMA task team by then, and uh, Zimbabwe was serving as chair. Now, following the adoption of the treaty uh, in February 2019, we have had quite a number of countries that have signed, but uh, as of today, we have eight countries that have ratified. Seven have already deposited their 
ratification and instruments with the African Union Commission, one country, which is Morocco, is yet to deposit the, the instrument. We are busy working with the additional 13 countries that have already signed. The idea is that we should push for ratification because we need a minimum of 15 countries to ratify the AMA Treaty for AMA to come into force. And we are hopeful that if all goes well, say by the time we get to, into the next AU summit in June, July, we should, this is again, uh, if all goes well, we are saying ratification is a, is a national process and therefore we are hoping that uh, with the uh, efforts that we put in place, for instance, uh, in February this year, the summit had actually um, officially appointed Honorable Michelle Sidibe, who was the former executive director of UNAIDS, but also the former minister of health of Mali to become the AU special envoy for AMA. So basically what we are doing is through him is to reach out to, to engage at a high level, political uh, level in terms of advocacy, to reach out to countries that need to ratify the AMA so that by the time we get to the next AU summit, then we have the minimum 12 ratification. If that happens, then we will now go to the next step of um, making sure that now the hosting arrangements are worked out, but also issues around how we uh, work on the existing AMRH initiative and how it is going to relate to the AMA. Those mechanisms have to be worked out, including, of course, the recruitment of the Director General. So this is a process that we are currently going through. But uh, it's a collaborative effort, as I mentioned. We have quite a number of partners that we're working together to ensure that this happens. Sounds like you have made quite a lot of progress. Please tell me again, how many have already ratified? Seven have ratified. Yes. Seven, seven have ratified and deposited the, um, uh, the ratification instrument with AUC. So those are the official ratifications. Yes. We have one more, Morocco, which has ratified but has not yet deposited the instrument. So yes. that is eight. Yes. Right in total, yes. okay. and then we, we we are targeting seven more because we need a fifteen minimum yes. to get the armor uh, okay. coming okay. into force. Yes. So we are saying that we are targeting the seventeen because currently those that have signed we have thirteen of them that are that have not ratified yes. thirteen. Yes. So out of those thirteen, we are targeting seven at least. We if we get fifteen, then we we are ready to go yes. to get into the um putting the, the the instruments into force. Right, right. But it sounds like quite a lot of progress because normally ratification processes yes. take quite a long time yes. and very true and and so this is actually quite good and you have already 17 countries that have put in place or encoded the the model law international laws so is there a threshold number that is required to encode the model law for all of this to come together how does it relate the model law the AMA treaty ratification and of course the African free trade uh, continental agreement ratification as well how do the three come together so basically the um, aim of uh, coming up with the au model law on medical products regulation was to improve the legal national legal formats for regulation of medicines but you know by the african union member states and because basically it, it helps to um, ensure that, uh, you know, countries have strong institutions that are autonomous, that are able to collect and utilize fees. So basically it's looking into the governance 
at a national level and also making sure that all the core regulatory functions are covered in a national law. And so, but also we have aspects that relate to countries being able to participate in regional harmonization initiatives. You know, it provides for that, but also countries to rely on decisions made by other countries, which is a very key component when it comes to ensuring efficiency of regulatory services and also effectiveness of regulatory services. So, so we have the 17 countries that have ratified, but also we have seven more that we are busy working with. In Central Africa, we have five that we are working with, but also two more countries in 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 West Africa. So basically, that is going to make a total of 24. Our initial target was 25 countries by 2020, which we could not really um, attend. But uh, we, we are thankful that with the support from UNDP, we are able to now reach out to more countries. How does it relate to the... Um, Treaty. So these are two uh, separate legal instruments. One is to assist at the national level to strengthen their you know, legal framework, but AMA basically what it does is to have an instrument at a continental level that brings together all the 55 AU member states. But again, it all depends on whether a country ratifies to the treaty or not for them to become the, you know, part, the state's party, we call them. Because otherwise, if a country doesn't ratify, they are not a member to the treaty. So that's the, the difference. But I think you, you've also mentioned about now the African continent of free trade area. This is another AU uh, policy framework, which basically aims to uh, facilitate trade among countries on the continent and of course, taking advantage of the size, the population size, we're talking about 1.3 billion people mm-hmm. on the continent, but also facilitating trade ac- across countries by removing trade barriers, including tariff and non-tariff barriers. And I think AMA comes very handy in this when it comes to now streamlining the regulatory processes, you know, harmonizing the requirements so that it becomes easier to trade across countries. And I mentioned before, for instance, that we have started with the regions harmonizing the standards. But of course, eventually the idea is that uh, we have continental technical guidelines for whether it's marketing authorization. We already have some guidelines, for instance, for clinical trial oversight, which we have developed through our AVRF technical committee. So basically what is going to happen is that when when AMA comes into force, it will take on the work that we've done under the AMRH initiative, because a lot of good work has been done there in terms of technical capacity, having the technical committees. As I mentioned before, guidance documents have been issued. So basically, AMA will have to just take on the things that have been done under AMRH and and continue with that. That is the whole idea. Okay. What about the maturity levels of regulatory agencies? So at the moment, we have two. We have Ghana FDA recently uh, was certified to have reached level three maturity that's second to tanzania and perhaps counting south africa we have maybe three regulatory agencies performing or having a ranking of a high maturity level to what extent does the number of regulatory agencies with a certain maturity level affect or impact your ability to have an effective ama when it comes into effect no, I think our wish is to have those strong agencies becoming 
you know, party to the AMAP process so that the, because the idea is to really, uh, for AMAP to support all the 55 member states to build and strengthen their capacity. That's the idea. But we are thankful for, for instance, for a start, we have Ghana already that has ratified the AMAP treaty and Ghana is actually already uh, at a maturity level three. We have Zimbabwe that has signed and we are hopeful that they'll be able to ratify very soon. And Zimbabwe also plays a very critical role when it comes to regulatory capacity, and it serves as one of the lead agency in the SADC region and across the continent. And so I think it is going to be an, you know, a process in itself. It's a journey that we have to um, undergo because it's one thing to, for a country to have a technical capacity, but it's another thing for a country to have a political will to ratify the treaty. So these are two different processes and you have to strike a balance at some point. But we are busy engaging countries so that they see the value of them becoming a party to the AMA process so that eventually would have all the 55 countries as, as members of AMA. But uh, it will take time. For sure. yeah, obviously, uh, these things are, especially when parliaments are involved, it always takes quite a long time yeah. before things are done. So you mentioned a variety of partners who are involved, uh, who have come on board with the AMRH since it started in 2009, and that the World Bank also came on board as a funder. So at the moment, who funds the work of the AMRH? Who funds the work of implementing or working towards operationalizing the African Medicines Agency? And what are the provisions for making sure that going forward, once enough countries have ratified the AMA Treaty, you have enough resources for it to be for the agency to be sustainable and to be able to do its job. So at the moment, the main funding agency for the AMRH activities, if I may say, is the Gates Foundation. Because even when it came to uh, funding the establishing the trust fund under the World Bank, it was a big chunk of money came from the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But as I mentioned, we also have the UK uh, International uh, Development Agency that came on board then. And also we've had uh, IFPMA, for instance, also came on board with some funding. And we've had them, um, you know, the U.S. government through PEPFA, they also contributed some money, Gavi at some point. So we've had uh, quite a number of uh, partners that uh, contributed to the AMRH funding process. Now, the idea is to now look into how to facilitate the funding for AMA. And uh, for a start, WHO, the Director General of the World Health Organization, offered $1 million U.S. million to support the AMA process. So we are busy working with the African Union Commission to see how we can utilize the money to facilitate the AMA process, including its takeoff. That's what we are busy working with. And we hope that at some point, funding will be um, made available for uh, AMA activities. We're busy working with partners to see what are the initial funding needs because uh, at least some groundwork was done to determine you know, how much money would be needed for AMA to take off. That was done and therefore we just need to galvanize our efforts and engage all the key players and make sure that there is funding to take off. But I think it's also very important to know that the AMA treaty it establish, establishes um, the 
uh, after medicines agency as a specialized agency which would have its own powers to uh, it would be a legal personality and it would have powers to uh, be able to collect fees and utilize for its own services but also there'll be contribution from the member states that are party to the AMA process. So there is, you know, um, a broad sort of range of uh, funding source for AMA to be able to sustain its own activities as a specialized agency of the AU. Yes, but what about uh, agencies like the African Bank and African Development Bank? They've been very vocal in supporting the pandemic response. And obviously, one of the conversations that is going on right now is the need to be forward-looking and put in place structures that allows African countries not to be in exactly the same spot when the next pandemic comes. So they've put quite a few millions of dollars of funds that are supposed to be supporting the, the pandemic effort. Could some of those funds be made available to support this initiative? Because it seems quite a critical initiative towards our ability to respond in this pandemic, but most importantly, to, to prepare for what happens when the next pandemic comes around the corner. I think you're raising a very important point when it comes to really ensuring that AMA takes off with uh, enough resources to be able to address the, the needs of the continent, especially when it comes to emergency preparedness. And so engaging institutions such as uh, Africa Bank and uh, African Development Bank, I think is very critical. And I believe once we have the AMA Treaty sort of signed off by the 15 member states, I believe that will be the time when the um, the necessary structures will have to engage the respective financing institutions to see how best that can be done. Because at the moment, AMA has not come into force yet. We are only working from the Emirates point of view. But when it comes to the actual realization of AMA, there's a lot to be done, including, for instance, as I mentioned, once we have the Director General appointed, those are the things that one will have to take on board once they're appointed. So looking forward then, anticipating that everything works according to plan and you get to that point where the powers that be can start to engage with potential financiers like the African Bank and, and others who could bring additional resources that are needed to make sure that when AMA comes into effect, it has adequate funding, it is sustainable. Would you anticipate that he would need to um, highlight some big wins uh, in making your business case why they should support AMA going forward? I think the business case for AMA is already very clear. And as, as I mentioned, you know, we've had uh, a lot of consultations. I remember in 2019, we had, uh, you know, the conference of all the African medicine regulators on the continent to discuss issues around how AMA, you know, would look like when it comes into force and what are the key aspects, including the, you know, the activities, the functions, the funding, you know, so... These discussions have been held and uh, business case has been made, but I think the lim rate limiting factor is the taking off of the AMA itself, you know, because uh, we cannot speak for AMA because AMA has not come into fruition. So once it comes into force, then all these other things will come together. But we know exactly what is expected of AMA and what are the valuable propositions. We, we, we are very clear on that.
but uh, we need to some things have to be you know put on hold until such time when armor is really operational great and let's just maybe take the conversation back to the to the aspiration of making vaccines so most countries in the region are procuring vaccines mostly through un agencies like unicef and others like gavi and even for for routine immunization and this means that regulators are not routinely involved in doing gmp inspections of manufacturing plants they are not evaluating documentation and obviously this must impact on your efforts to to improve regulatory capacity so how are you dealing with those issues to be able to build that capacity that requires that regulators across the region have the right kind of exposure industrial exposure and you know clinical trials gcp inspections I think when it comes to a capacity to regulate um, vaccines on the continent, this is an area that we are still um, sort of limited. And uh, as you might know, we only have five countries that are vaccine manufacturing at the moment on the continent. We have Egypt, we have Morocco, we have uh, Senegal, Ethiopia, and if, if I'm not mistaken, Tunisia as well. And these are the countries that are producing vaccines. And so at least you can say that there is some level of capacity in those countries for them to be able to do a lot of risk, for instance, for vaccines to be able to be used. But otherwise, what we discussed, I remember even during the uh, vaccine conference was that uh, we may have to really take a stepwise approach when it comes to uh, building capacity, regulatory capacity for uh, oversight on vaccine manufacturing. And uh, the good thing is that already we have tools, we have experience, you know, on, in working in, in other areas. As I mentioned before, when we, we started the AMRH initiative, the initial, initial, the entry point was on registration of generic medicines. Mm. And eventually we went into, you know, new chemical entities, we went into, you know, clinical trials of vaccines and so forth. But now that we are going into vaccine manufacturing, this is an area that we want to get engaged in and um, start with those countries that, that are manufacturing vaccines so that we can do a benchmarking exercise and be able to determine where the gaps are and assist the countries to develop the institutional development plan so that we can be able to help them to attain at the minimum uh, WHO maturity level three. That's our aim, that's our strategy, and that's how we view this moving forward. But of course, once we have uh, been able to work with those five countries for a start, we also are aware that other countries are also aspiring to uh, start manufacturing, uh, taking into account this initiative that has been launched uh, on the continent since last year. And therefore, this is the strategy that we will take on to make sure that we do our part to support countries to build their capacity to provide oversight on vaccine manufacturing. Okay, so let's say that we have managed to support, we take the the five countries which are already which already have some manufacturing capacity and we support them and raise their uh, regulatory maturity level just working with the five because we have to start somewhere right start exactly. working with those five would that be adequate for the continent to say that we now have a regulatory environment that could support or motivate 
potential partners for technology transfer. You know, we are able to evaluate clinical trials, do, do GCP inspections on sites and so forth. We are able to cover that adequately. Well, I think for a start, I think it, it, it is a stepwise approach, as I mentioned, because you cannot just cover all the 55 countries at a go. And so for me, what I'm seeing is that, yes, we start with countries, we, we identify the gaps, we build the capacity, they get to a certain level of maturity. But of course, what it means is also that, uh, as we've done in other you know uh, streams of products, is that we would have to eventually have you know, um, a pool of experts, you know, on vaccine oversight, you know, on vaccine manufacturing oversight, so that, you know, when it comes, for instance, in GCP inspections, GMP inspections, then you use that pool as basis for providing technical support to other countries that may want to venture into vaccine manufacturing, but you create it as a continental pool of experts. As I mentioned to you, we have the African Vaccines uh, regulators forum as a continental technical committee that that helps other countries to be able to do, to do joint reviews of uh, clinical trial applications equally when it comes to vaccine manufacturing we'll have to do the same as a matter of fact currently we are also busy putting together a pool of experts you know ranging from different subject you know subject you know matter from epidemiology to virology so that we you know when it comes to even when it comes to review of those um applications for vaccine authorization then we use the pool of experts to do such reviews in, in, in addition to assessors that are coming from the regulatory agencies so that's where we are at now obviously in creating that pool of human resources of, of talent yes. And experts is very critical to going forward. And if you're doing it on a continental level, I suppose you would want to draw from where you have all of the best talent across the exactly. African exactly. continent and um, prepare. And even beyond, and even beyond, because sometimes we also use, you know, experts coming, for, for instance, in our um, AU3S, Smart Safety Surveillance, we use expertise from MHRA, MHRA in UK, we do that, you know, there's also saving, uh, you know, to provide some technical uh, guidance and expertise. So, but also even in AVRF, you will have USFDA that comes in to also provide technical support. So we do use uh, the stringent regulatory authorities as well when it comes to building our own continental capacity. Yes, but I suppose the balance there, of course, with partners who are bringing in the technical support is to make sure that our people have the right kind of exposure, right? The hands-on um, exactly. participation. Yes. Because sometimes you, you don't want to go to the other side where you use too much expertise from outside no. because then you no. perpetuate that same cycle. We really. have always used our own continental experts, but when yes. need arises to say you want extra you know, expertise in a certain, you know, area, then you bring them in, in, you know, provide technical guidance, for instance, when they're doing some, you know, rev joint reviews. So these are the things, they're just sharing experience, actually, if I may yes. say so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, that's, that's fantastic. So let's say that we have gone past all of this, we've built the capacity, everything is in place. We have the regulatory, uh, our regulators in place. Then going forward towards market access, one of the biggest hurdles for African manufacturers, you know, the, for having viable business models that are sustainable is the, the regulatory barriers. 
to market access. Is that something that you as regulators uh, can do something about or do you have a plan for helping manufacturers to deal with some of those hurdles so that once you are you reach that stage where you have some manufacturers making vaccines they can access markets beyond the national borders and therefore have businesses that are actually viable and sustainable now i think when it comes to market access again i think i'd mentioned before you know we have created these regional you know sort of markets for 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 a start through harmonizing these standards and conducting these joint reviews and also um, allowing the manufacturers to come in to also express their interest if they want to supply, for instance, certain products in a particular market, you know, in a particular regional market for that matter. So equally, I believe it will go now continental, now that we're going into the um, African continental free trade area, the market will be even, you know, more expanded because you have re removed the technical barriers to trade and therefore you allow you know the country the manufacturers to be able to supply across countries on the continent so i think it's basically the same thing that we are doing you know to create markets for manufacturers to be able to access regardless of the borders you know in, that may be in the various countries across across the continent and so that's the only way i see us coming into uh, really facilitate that market access by the industry and i guess that is the value of the african free trade continental area right to exactly. open up those markets and make markets, it easier yes. for yes. for companies to trade but yes. then we still have the hurdle that a lot of the vaccine procurement in africa is happening through gavi and and un agencies which usually is a pretty steep barrier in that you require uh, WHO pre-qualification for you to be able to access those markets. So even with the African free trade continental area, you still probably need to be able to access those, the international markets, for you to be able to reach those different countries. How does one get around that? No, I think I can only speak to um, the, uh, the the recently established African Medical Supply Platform, which basically is aimed to facilitate um, access to markets by the local industry. And uh, so this platform has been established under the leadership of uh, President Aramaposa. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically what it does is to ensure that, uh, you know, they identify the needs from the countries and then they're able to source you know, supplies from various sources. And the idea is that as we're moving into uh, really having our own, you know, uh, assured supply of vaccines, for instance, then that platform can facilitate uh, the process of um, industry having access to, to those markets. But uh, also I know that um, through the uh, existing procurement initiatives that are also ongoing on the continent, I believe that can also be um, another platform that can assist manufacturers to be able to um, secure uh, various markets on the continent. So I'm seeing quite a number of initiatives that are happening on the continent that are really meant to facilitate the industry to be able to not only produce, but also be able to access the markets through, through the various platforms. And I know also that... Uh, UNECA, of course, they are focusing on maternal and child health uh, products, but basically they are also uh, they have also in, uh, started this initiative, which is called the AFCFTA anchored pharmaceutical initiative. And what it does is basically to link between local production, 
and uh, procurement and regulatory harmonization so that you are able to facilitate market access by the industry. So those are the initiatives that are ongoing on the continent. Great. Well, it sounds like there's a lot happening. People are really thinking about everything. You've already highlighted very nicely how the AMRH has already come into play and benefited countries in terms of supporting their regulatory approvals of PPE and so forth during the pandemic. Has the pandemic also amplified uh, some of the challenges that you would normally see, let's say, with substandard medicines, with substandard or fake vaccines. We've seen quite a lot of news about COVID vaccines that are coming onto African markets uh, and people have to pay money to get them because there are no vaccines within African markets. Now, I think the issue of substandard and falsified medicines, it is uh, a, a issue, an issue of concern that needs to be addressed squarely. And uh, I did mention, of course, when, you know, when I was talking about medical devices that we had to come up with some mechanisms to assist countries to be able to um, detect, you know, uh, such uh, products. And uh, we are aware that in some countries they have been able to detect some of the, uh, you know, substandard and falsified medical products. So I think we just have to be vigilant and uh, have a mechanism that would facilitate the detection because, you know, some of these products, they can go undetected and get into uh, use by the people in the various, you know, uh, markets. But uh, the issue of um, assisting countries to be able to analyze and detect those substandard and falsified medicines is another area that we are busy working with. Actually, at the moment, we have a technical committee, which is called the African Medicines Quality Forum, which is composed of experts from national quality control laboratories and national regulatory agencies that are coming together to assist countries to be able to detect, to conduct market surveillance, but also detect uh, falsified and uh, substandard medicines. So we hope these initiatives will also go a long way to assist in curbing such products circulating in our market. Yes. And what kind of conversations do you think um, should be happening around this idea that we are seeing increasingly in countries that have access to vaccines? There, there's a lot of talk about having vaccination certificate as, an, as a condition for entering another country. And we're all looking at this and wondering what it means for us in African countries where we don't have vaccines, but if you have to travel for work, you have to show proof of vaccination. And then, of course, there is the issue of the fact that people can go and pay for vaccines that may or may not be real in those markets. What sort of conversations would you be having around this issue with, you know, between African governments and those countries? So I think this is an area that really uh, requires more attention. You know, I think first one has to create awareness that there are such sort of situations that need to be addressed. But I think it has to get to a point where you engage policymakers, decision makers, but also regulators have also to be involved in the discussion because uh, people take advantage where they see there's a vacuum and they can do whatever they feel like doing. So I think these are areas that need, require really um, very objective conversation to see how best we can curb such uh, practices. That's yeah. the only thing that I can say. Absolutely. And so 
then there's the challenge of this phenomena of hesitancy and conspiracy theories which is really growing in in all the countries and it seems that perhaps I don't know what you think, but would greater participation by African people, African countries in clinical trials, do you think that's something that could help address the issue of hesitancy and conspiracy theories if people were able to participate from that early stage and to be able to see that there's nothing sinister happening when people are testing vaccines? I think you're bringing a very important point. You know, community engagement when it comes to, you know, whether you're doing trials or you're actually launching the vaccination process, it's very, very important. And I think this is an area that we may not have done very well. And uh, But what I'm seeing, the ongoing conversations is that, um, you know, I see the AU leadership trying to encourage those that are manufacturing vaccines, for instance, that want to um, uh, put their products on the African market to conduct clinical trials here on the continent. And I think that is the right direction to go because through that, then it is easier to engage them from the initial stages of, uh, you know, clinical uh, development and, you know, the clinical trial process. And eventually when it is approved, then it becomes easier for them to accept the products. But I think another aspect that is always very necessary is the early engagement, you know, of the community leaders is very, very, very important. Very important. So I believe we, we are learning a lot through these um, pandemics that are coming. You know, we've learned we learned something during the Ebola um, situation, and now with COVID nineteen, I think there's a lot more to learn. But I should also say that uh, looking back from how we handled Ebola you know, some years back and to see today where we have Africa CDC established and a lot of work that has gone into uh, managing the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. I think we are making very, very good progress as a continent. And uh, I believe it's, it's a matter of time because even the, the developers of these products, they also need to have confidence in our own systems to say, if I come to do a clinical trial in your country, so what are the regulatory processes and how much time do, what do I need, you know, to get an approval? And, you know, so there is a lot of work that has to go into building trust between the developers and the, the countries that they want to do the clinical trials in, but also engaging the community so that they also build trust in terms of the vaccine that they're going to be uh, tried on and eventually be used in the respective countries. But it's a process, but we are making good progress, as I mentioned, and uh, I think we are moving in the right direction. No, it's, a, it's a really important point that you make about trust. Um, I had a conversation about polio eradication in Nigeria and what really made a difference during the, the final push. And one of the things they did very well was to really let community leaders take charge of yeah. that whole process and, and lead to make sure that all kids were reached within exactly. those communities. So that's very critical. Mm -hmm. And and also it's very interesting um, point that you mentioned that if developers don't have confidence in our own systems, then they may be more reluctant to... They, they shy away from doing the clinical trials here. We yes. see that. There's a lot of concerns still, but uh, the good thing is that we are engaging. We I see very very positive engagements from different uh, communities of practice, whether it's researchers, uh, developers, and ethics 
reviewers and regulators, there is more discussions going on now than ever before. And I think, you know, this is a very healthy environment that we are in, that eventually as a continent, there is that realization that we it's a battle that we are in together and that each one of us has a role to play and that we have to do it jointly, that no one of us can do it alone. Absolutely, and of course, if there if there is not enough efficacy data, clinical trial data, trial data that is generated in populations that are relevant to us, mm -hmm. then it harms us as well exactly. in, in taking those exactly. products. But I'm wondering, where does the engagement happen? Uh, we, we have so many agencies. We have the Africa CDC. We have you, the regulators, who are doing things to make sure that we improve. We have products that work as expected and that are safe so i was watching the the development of the covid pandemic which we were all following in real time and just seeing the low numbers of subjects in the clinical trials that were done in africa and i wondered whether we as African uh, countries or with our institutions like yourselves, like the Africa CDC, could have had a mechanism for actively reaching out to attract clinical trials to different parts of the region where the capabilities are there. Is there something of the sort, a mechanism of actually actively engaging to make sure we have enough clinical trials which are appropriately powered to generate data that is of good quality to support marketing approval of products on the African market. Well, there is a platform. First of all, I must mention that last year in August, actually, the heads of state and government, the Bureau of Heads of State and Government under the chairmanship of the President Ramaphosa approved the uh, strategy for access to uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And uh, in that strategy, there is uh, there are three key components. One is on the uh, on research and development. Another one is on financing and procurement. And another one is on delivery, which also covers the issues around uh, regulation and final use by the patients. But uh, on the clinical development component, there is also a consortium that has been established to really facilitate um, you know, clinical development and trials being conducted on the continent. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. John Kenkerson, the CDC, Africa CDC uh, executive director, has been very instrumental in reaching out to the various you know, manufacturers that are producing this to say, come and do the trials here on the continent. We've also established the African Regulatory Task Force, which is composed of um, you know, experts from the Africa CDC, AUDA NEPAD, and WHO to really guide on the um, authorization of vaccines for, on the continent. So there is already those platforms that are working and we're working very collaboratively to ensure that uh, you know, each one of us does what they're supposed to do. So AUDA NEPAD has been, as you, you know, that uh, we've been taking lead in this regulatory front and we are doing that in, in collaboration with our colleagues to see where the needs are and what we need to do to facilitate the approval processes. And so it's working very well. And actually we are in, in, in very regular contacts with uh, Africa CDC and, and uh, we have a very good working relationship. 
Fantastic. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of work that is going on and a lot of progress as well being made that is tangible and, um, and, and quite visible. So that's for us as African people, that's very good to know that uh, you've got our backs covered. To, uh, the yeah. medicines that are coming to our countries, we can expect that they are safe and, and work as expected because our regulators are really working towards making sure that that happens. Mm -hmm. So what would be your assessment be of where we are right now and where we need to be? Uh, the moonshot, of course, you know, the big idea where we want to go is to finally have an African medicines agency that has oversight over the entire market, which will open up all kinds of opportunities for African people, for African businesses. What would you say is the gap where we are and where we need to be? We are almost there. We are almost there. I did mention to you, it, the coming into force of armor is a political process that we are pushing through the structures that be, including, of course, the um, using our AU special envoy on armor, but also we have President Kagame, who is the champion for the African Medicines Agency. So we are hopeful that uh, come June, July, would see something you know positive coming out of the AU summit, and that uh, from that then we'll have been able to uh, work on the uh, hosting arrangement for AMA, and also some transitional arrangements on how you know AMA is going to be related to the AMRH initiative, but also the issues around recruitment of the director general will have been worked out. So hopefully, if all goes well, hopefully, maybe we're talking about 2022 that I uh, would see AMA, you know, starting its business. And uh, we, are, we, are, we are very excited because uh, we've done the groundwork and uh, we want AMA to really take off running, you know, basically. We are almost there. I mean, that is exciting. I mean, 2022 is not far away. That's it's not uh, far. It's not that's, far. That's six months down the line. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so really uh, great work you have been doing. And I've seen you guys. I know you work very hard. Uh, crisscrossing the continent and um, yeah it's fantastic so we we are almost at the end of our conversation Margaret so maybe just some specific actions that you can leave us with so we are almost there what would you say are the the key things that really will get us there right from from where we are right now things that would be transformative that if we are to get just three things right, it would be this. What would that be? No, oh, let's have the, uh, the, 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 the country um, that will host AMA identified, okay? So once we know the country that is going to host AMA, then, then the next thing will be now to put, you know, together the structures that are required, you know, for the uh, AMA secretary to, to start its work. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that's those are the two key issues: hosting, and you know, having an office for AMA and uh, getting the staff of course on board to take off you know the activities that AMA would be mandated to do. Yeah, wonderful. Well, it sounds like the finishing line is already in sight because I imagine that the conversations about who gets to host and what the secretariat and the governance should look like are already ongoing. So I'm sure we are really 
more than halfway there and uh thank you so much for uh, talking to me today on let's talk about health in africa it's a pleasure to have you on and thank you for sharing with us your insights and analysis about how we are going to establish and how far we are from establishing the african medicines agency thank you so much for having me on this discussion i really appreciate it not at all it's a pleasure thank you bye bye thank you, thank you. bye bye